We are digging through the book of Acts, and we've been in this for quite some time now. We will be in it for a while, uh, a while longer, uh, just systematically going through the book of Acts. And one thing that we've seen over and over again is that uh, the church is not a building. In fact, we, we, we see the church birthed in Acts 2. We're in Acts 10. We, we yet to have a building. But there's a lot about the church, and so we say it over and over again. The church is a people, not a building. We are thankful for a building like this. What a beautiful building. And uh, there were many people over the years that sacrificed in order to make this building possible, and it is a blessing. So a building is a blessing, and a building is a tool. But a building by itself is not the church. In fact, we're the church right now because the people have gathered together. But, and so throughout 2,000 years of church history, the church has always been... Uh, had a twofold dynamic. That is a church gathered and a church scattered. And so I just want to say, I know that, uh, you know, we're gathering right now. It's still not the same because there are a lot of people with with, uh, underlying health issues that don't need to be, and we're encouraging them to stay home. And there are others who, uh, who just don't feel comfortable for whatever reason. And they haven't come. And, I, and so I, I want to say, this is just a unique time that we have to uh, balance with great wisdom. But at the the same time, I want to encourage, and and I guess this goes for those who are listening or watching at home, I want to encourage you not to get too comfortable with not physically gathering with the saints. I think uh, uh, Pastor Caleb said it last week, virtual church is not church. There is a certain degree of God's grace that is imparted to each of us when we gather incarnationally just as Jesus didn't stand at a distance from heaven but he came and made his dwelling among us too we are to get in each other's presence and hear one another sing and 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 read the word and on a practical level I was at the beach last weekend and I had my six uh with me and uh my sister's three and uh there we got one 15 year old the rest are not teenage years right there there i think the oldest after that is 11 so we had we had uh what is that eight 11 and under and you know that includes plenty that are still like six and under long story short we watched about three minutes of the church service last weekend all right, so I was excited. I was like, all right, Pastor First Baptist here. I'm calling everybody, you know, my sister, my, my brother-in-law. We were, uh, here we are. We're going to watch Pastor Caleb get after it. And again, three weeks in, I'm like, I mean, three minutes in, I'm like, hey, guys, y'all want to just cut this off? This, <laughs> this isn't work. So on a practical level, it's just not the same when, when you're not in, in person. So what do I, what do I, what's my word there? My word is this. For those who need to stay at home, we want you to stay at home. For those who have simply, and I say this lovingly, but those who have simply gotten lazy, don't stay at home. Because your soul will deteriorate in terms of all that God has planned and all that God wants you to be. It's just going to gnaw at your soul. And I don't say that in a legalistic way. I say that in a loving way. I just say that in a biblical way. God has designed you as his people to both scatter and to gather. So I just want to encourage you with that word as we, and we see this, you know, in the book of Acts. Now today we're talking about grace. We're talking about grace. Grace is at the heart of Christianity. It is, I mean, we, the, the, we are saved by grace. It is all about grace, not just at the beginning and then it's about works. It's about grace in the, the beginning, in the middle, and the end. Everything is about grace 
in the Christian's life. Amen? All right. It's all about grace. And I had to remember that yesterday. Because I've talked to my son about uh, the importance of practicing. You know, practice makes perfect, and we're in the middle of ball right now. And I've got two sons, six children, two sons, uh, and this is my six-year-old, George. We're, we're, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're working hard trying to get his, uh, you know, uh, mechanics with, with uh, hitting down and all that kind of stuff. So he, he gets in the yard, he throws up a ball and hits it and everything. And I've, I've told, I said, you know, that's important. You've got to practice hard. You've got to do that a lot, just routine, over and over and over again. And then yesterday, I saw this. I don't know if you can tell what that is, but that's the windshield of my beautiful minivan when and so I had to I was working in the yard and he was hitting it you know hitting it up just like we've talked about and but I have told him though please do not hit it towards two things just two things don't hit it towards the house and the cars well I, I think he had the house down he just forgot about the cars. so um I've already had to turn in my man card by driving a minivan, right? And so now I'm driving a minivan with a busted windshield. And so I was working in the yard. I heard it, and I knew, oh, that didn't sound good. And I turned and looked at him. I couldn't see the windshield from where I was, and I saw his face, and I knew it wasn't good. So I went and looked at it, and as soon as I saw it, you know what I thought? Ben, you're preaching on grace tomorrow. (laughs) Don't do anything that will make you walk into the pulpit with shame. And so, I don't know if I did it just perfectly. I, I definitely, I mean, you know, smoke may, have become, may or may not have been coming out of my ears at the time, but uh, there you have it. But we are talking about grace today, and let me just kind of give you a, an update on, or a recap of, of kind of where we are. So last week, Pastor Caleb did an amazing job. Uh, I got to listen to it on a podcast. But he was talking about this guy named Saul, who was one of the main persecutors of the church. He hated Christians. He wanted to end the church. And yet, on his way to a place called Damascus, Jesus showed up, and, he, and it changed everything. And he was saved. Uh, his name was Saul. It, it's later going to become Paul. And uh, he starts immediately telling people about Jesus. Now, of course, everybody was shocked. And he wasn't at home with any group. The Jews didn't want him. The Jews were like, really? Just like that, you're one of us, and now you're not one of us? You're one of them? Okay, well, suit yourself, but just know you're going to be in the crosshairs now. And actually, in Acts chapter 9, it says that, uh, that they, they decided to, to, to kill. They, wanted to, they plotted to murder, to kill Saul. And so he was in Damascus, there to persecute the church, met Jesus. Now he's with the church, and the church is like talking to him about, okay, uh, here's how we're going to sneak you out of town. They lowered him through a basket, a, a hole in the wall, and it was, it was really incredible uh, story about how he made it out of there alive. So the Jews didn't want him, but then the Christians were, were they weren't really easy. I mean, would you be, would you want, I mean, yeah, you can have him in your home, but I don't know, I got kids. I mean, he's been killing, like just days ago was killing Christians. And so, finally, a guy named Barnabas, who's part of the church, he stood up and he said, no, he's, he's cool, guys. He's one of us. Just trust me on this. And so he became a mediator. And he boldly goes out and preaches Jesus. And then in chapter 9, verse 32, it switches back to Peter. It was spotlighting uh, Paul, or Saul. And now it's back to Peter. Peter uh, does a couple of healings. And then we get to chapter 10, and we see a couple of visions in chapter 10. And chapter 10 becomes one of the most transitional point in the books of uh, points in the book of Acts and in the entire 
Bible. Because right here, uh, up until this point, up until this point, up until chapter 10, the gospel is mainly still Jewish. Now we've seen some, we've seen some Samaritans come to know Christ, but still someone would, could argue, well, they have Jewish blood in them, even though they're half-breeds, even though they're, they're half-Jewish, half-Gentile, they still have some Jewish blood in them. But now we see God opening the floodgates of blessing with the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is a big, big deal. So let's, let's jump in and let's look at these visions. First of all, Acts chapter 10, look at this. Starting in verse 1, it says, At Caesarea, uh, which was a very Roman city in, um, uh, among the Jews, it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, there's a lot there that we have to unpack so we really get the context here. First of all, it says that he is a centurion. So he's a Roman officer in the army, Roman army, centurion of the Italian cohort. Now, what is that about? Well, let me just tell you what that means. That means that this guy is among the most respected and most elite in the social class of Rome. And social class during this time meant everything. You see, what happened is years before, when Greece was the big powerhouse of the world, you had a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, and he had a different strategy than every other strategy before his time. Every other strategy is when the army would come in, they would, um, they would conquer an enemy. Guess what they would do to the officers? They would kill them. But then Alexander the Great was like, now, that's a waste of talent. That's a waste of wisdom. That's a waste of brilliance. And uh, I'm not going to do that. So he gave him an option. He, said, he, he conquered the enemy. He talked to the officers. He said, here's what I, I got for you. One of two options. One, we kill you. Two, you become one of us. You work for us. And, 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 uh, and of course, they didn't have much of an option. They, they chose the, the latter. And that's how Alexander the Great built his great army and expanded way beyond his initial uh, territory. And so um, Julius Caesar... In his book on, uh, book on war, he was talking about how the Romans took note of that, and they did likewise. They thought, this is a great idea. And so, of course, Rome, years later, became the powerhouse. They became, and their army became huge. And so uh, they took their officers, uh, the officers of enemies, and they said, okay, you can either die or you can become us. And most of them became Roman then. And that made two classes or two degrees of officers so no matter which one you were you were respected but there were the there were those officers that were former enemies of rome and they were conquered and they became rome and then there were those who were originally roman that the latter that right there originally roman that's who cornelius was he was of the Italian cohort. So that means that even among the respected officers, they were all respected, he was the most respected. He was the most elite. So you can see that, um, that he, you know, this is a truly full-blooded Gentile. And what's interesting right here is that it says that he feared God. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed. 
And so what he did, this Cornelius guy, he represented a group that, uh, and there was a group of them, that though they were Gentile, they believed that Yahweh was the one true living God. Now, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish heritage is not a missionary uh, religion. And so you didn't become fully Jew. There's just no way to do that. And so even though he believed that the God, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the one true living God, it doesn't mean that he was born again. He was regenerated. It doesn't mean he was saved. But it does mean that God was moving in on him, that God was making himself known to him. You see, God will often, and I want you to hear this. This is a great principle for all of us. God will often prepare hearts before those hearts ever hear the gospel. And let me tell you why that's encouraging. I'll, I'll tell you through an illustration. A buddy of mine, he was a fraternity brother at, uh, at Auburn with me. He, um, he ended up, he's one of our boys. We send him, he's with the International Mission Board. And he's now in South Asia. He was at one time in, um, in Indonesia. And in Indonesia, I've told some of you this story before, but in Indonesia, there are, of course, thousands of islands. And a lot of these islands are very remote islands, still working on a tribal system. And one particular uh, island that that he had worked for years on in terms of making inroads, connections with some uh, indigenous people and, and learning their language and that kind of thing. Uh, him and his, he and his team had worked years and finally came the day. They went to the island, they were with some, they, they had a whole team, indigenous people, they had certain gifts and they were able to meet with a chief and, and they told the chief right away, we come in peace, they knew how to do that in their, um, in their custom, uh, in their culture, and then they gave him gifts and those kind of things that would be appropriate to let them know that they come in peace. And then he just told him, he said, I've come here to tell you about Jesus. And when he said the name Jesus, this, this chief stood up and he said, Jesus I've had a dream about Jesus. And of course, my buddy's shot. He's like, well, tell me about this dream. And, and remember, the gospel has never, missionaries have never been to this island before. The gospel has never reached this island. And, uh, and he said, all I, all I remember is that there was this man with this, he had a glowing white presence. And all I could do is fall at, my, fall at his feet and say, you are the most holy. And he said his name was Jesus. He said, tell me about this Jesus. Who, who, do you know who this Jesus is? And so my buddy said, you know, I just so happen to have the spiritual gift of dream interpretation. <laughs> it was like the softball of all softballs. And so he told him, he shared with him the gospel. The chief uh, accepted, trusted in Jesus and, uh, and was saved. And a lot of the island was then evangelized. It was this amazing story. Now, that dream did not save him because dreams never save us. Romans 10 makes it very clear that we've got to go tell the gospel, preach the gospel. But you know what that dream did? You know what God through that dream did? It prepared his heart. God will often prepare hearts before we ever go share. And that's exactly what he does with Cornelius right here in this in here, in fact, he, he gives um, Cornelius this vision, and he basically says, here's what you need to do. Send men to Joppa. There's a guy by the name of Simon who everybody calls Peter. He's there. He has a message for you. Tell the men to grab Peter, bring him back, and tell him and tell you what he has to tell you. And then so we're, um, and, and so he did. And then we pick up in verse 9. The next day, as they were, so these are Cornelius' men, as they were on their journey approaching the city, P- 
Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. All right, so this is the second vision. There are two visions. Cornelius had a vision. Go get this guy named Simon. They call Peter. Bring him back. He's got a message for you. Now we see a second vision. And Peter, while they're coming to get him, it's about a day's journey, um, he has a vision. He's in a trance. And this, is, this is what he saw. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven so right here just like that the people of God are now sanctioned in God's word to be able to eat barbecue which all the Baptists respond by saying amen Amen. that's right now it's it's interesting if you don't know a little Old Testament context this would be sound real confusing and even the statement I just made would sound real confusing here's what we know about the Old Testament there there is the law all right, you've got the law in the Old Testament. And historically, we've divided it really into three different facets. You've got the moral law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. You've got the ceremonial law and the civil law. Now, when, when Jesus went to the cross, you know what he did? He, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And over and over again, we see that we're not under law, but under grace. And it's not that the law was bad. And there's nothing bad about the law. In fact, the law is perfect. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, and so while the law points to righteousness, it cannot produce righteousness. Only grace can. But what God demands, God provides, and that's what grace is all about. He's, he provides that. And so what happened was, if you look in Leviticus 11, there is the ceremonial law. So the moral law tells us about God's character and how we ought to live. Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, you know, mur- or murder, or the, uh, commit adultery, those kind of things. And so that, that's the moral law. But the civil law, because they're a theocracy in the Old Testament, they've got to have like, okay, if you do this crime, you've got this punishment. They've got to have that kind of law, civil law. And of course, we're not a theocracy anymore, so that um, is not relevant for us. And neither is the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was really big on clean and unclean, being clean and unclean. If you come into contact with certain people, they were unclean. If you touch them, you would be unclean. And, uh, and even, even what you ate mattered. You see, in Leviticus 11, it says that uh, God, for, he, he, would, he, he uh, forbade, he would forbid the eating of any hoofed animals, any reptiles, any scavengers, and pigs. Because those were considered unclean, you would be unclean if you ate that. And there were two reasons for that. First of all, health, but secondly, they were to distinguish Israel. They were to be distinguished as God's people. Israel was. And so that was not only in how they worshiped, but also what they ate. And so that's why my reference to barbecue. Like you couldn't, in the Old Testament, you couldn't eat pigs. So that's why it was a big deal when the prodigal son left home. It showed just how, to a Jewish audience, just how uh, uh, 
disgusting he was. Not only did he just insult his dad saying, you're basically dead to me, give me my inheritance now while you're still living, but he went off and he squandered all his wealth and it, and it said he ended up being in a place working with pigs. And then he was so desperate that he wanted to eat the pods that the pigs ate. In that, so a Jewish ears, that would be like, ooh, that is nasty. That's, bad, that's as bad as it gets right there. And so that's why Peter responds, you want me to kill and eat? No, never. I know better. This is a test. This is a test. And, uh, but he said, no, I'm serious. And three times. Here at three times. Now, it's interesting. You see this theme in Peter's life. Three times is a big deal. First of all, we see Peter deny Jesus. How many times? Three times. And then when Jesus restores Peter, how many times does he ask him that he, if he loves him? Three times. He says, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so he, he restores him. He commissions him. And then right here we see this very important transition, not only in the book of Acts, but in the entire Bible. And the symbolism is not just, okay, you can eat pork barbecue now. The symbolism is, and he's going to figure this out later, that the unclean animals pointed to God's cleansing of the unclean Gentiles. In other words, the gospel is not just for a particular type of people, but it's for all people. And so Peter's basically scratching his head, trying to figure out, you know, file all this way and understand what he's talking about. And at the time, he gets a knock at the door when he's trying to figure this out. The men, remember Cornelius, came from um, uh, Caesarea, came all the way to Joppa. Uh, Peter unbeknownst to him these men were coming for him and then when he's trying to figure out this vision he gets a knock at the door and the Peter and then the people said Peter you got to come with us and so he comes and he meets Cornelius and Cornelius says okay God said you had a message for me give me the message what is the message and so what does he do he preaches the gospel the Holy Spirit falls on them. They speak in tongues, symbolizing that, uh, that, that they too are part of the body, that they have received that visible um, a demonstration of the Spirit. And then uh, he, he return, Peter returns to Jerusalem. The Jews are kind of fed up with him at, at first. They're like, what do you mean? He's un- he, you, you hung out with an unclean person? And then Peter tells them everything. And then all of a sudden they say, okay, well, so it is to the Gentiles we now shall go and take the gospel. All right, so I just summed up about two, two and a half uh, chapters of the book of Acts. But now what I want to do for the rest of our time, uh, very briefly, go back and look at what Peter actually said to Cornelius. Because I believe, I believe there's a word for us today in what he says to Cornelius. In fact, he preaches the gospel, and what we see is Three gospel truths, three gospel truths, or we could say grace has three major implications for us. Number one is that God shows no partiality based on race, gender, class, ethnicity, etc. We could go on, but he shows no partiality. Look at verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth. He's talking to Cornelius and all those that are with him, all Gentile. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
In other words, the church includes Gentiles as well as Jews. And there's not a distinction. In fact, if there was ever a racially charged uh, place, it was Ephesus. And in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, and he, and he says that what the cross did was break down the barrier of the dividing wall and made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man. Not that there would be distinctions, but that there would be oneness there. There would be unity. And so every nation, what he's saying is every nation will be represented in the new covenant, in the church, every nation. And, uh, and so what is grace? Let's go back to grace. What is grace anyway? You know what grace is? Grace is unmerited favor. And so that means that there is nothing of who we are or what we've done that deserves God's favor in our life. We can't look to the, the tribe we're from or from the, the, our, our nation. We can't look to say, well, I'm this kind of person. Therefore, you ought to save me, Lord. There is nothing in us that drove God to save us other than his sheer mercy and grace and love for us. That's it. And therefore, there's no boasting. And that means also that God does not show grace to a certain race. And let me just say, there's, you know, what does this mean for us today? Boy, let's talk. There's a lot about race and racism in our day right now and uh, of course I'm not going to be able to hit on everything today but I do want to invite you back in August I, I'm, going to, I'm going to take a pause uh, about th three or four weeks in the book of Acts I'm, going, I'm just going to take a time out from the book of Acts and we're going to do a sermon series called Think Through It and I'm going to be dealing with some pretty dicey hot topics of our day and what I don't want to do is say, all right, this is just how you need to think. Uh, as though it's some kind of indoctrination or, or, you know, you just need to turn off your mind and say, well, preacher, preacher said I got to think this way or whatever. These issues are way far too nuanced. Instead, what I want to do is, is, is to give you some tools to build a Christian worldview based on the Bible. And then tease out what that looks like and, and so you you can tease out but, but what I want to do in terms of think through it is take an issue and then think through it from a biblical worldview so we're going to get into this and I'll tell you the last two weeks you know since I hadn't preached the last two weeks I've been studying this I've been reading ferociously not only books that I agree with but books that I deeply disagree with some current ones some some ones that are very popular and, and what I'm wanting to do is is I want to be a good shepherd that's all I want to do. And if I'm not, if I, you know, what I'm not doing is getting political. What I am doing is getting biblical. If I'm not a shepherd who can say, okay, these are some major issues that everybody's dealing with, that everybody's talking about, and that everybody has some type of opinion on, and I'm just like, well, but that's too politically charged. I'm not going to deal with that when it, when it really deals with, with like deep biblical stuff. I'm not being a good shepherd. So that's what I'm going to do. I'll be in August. Um, pray for me as we... As we near that, but I want you to, I want you to, uh, to come back with eager hearts. And, and what we're going to probably do is have some sermon talk back. Because I want, I, I want you, if I say things that you may want to push back against, I don't want to just 
like you just say, ah, I disagree with him, but I'm never going to talk to him about it. No, let's, let's get into this and let's really wrestle with these things. This is how we're to, to do. This is what we see in the book of Acts, wrestling with deep, profound issues together. And, uh, and suffice it to say, in terms of, of what we see right here, you know, the problem, the ultimate problem in the world is not a skin problem when it comes to racism. It's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Because racism is not, a, is, is not a root sin, it's a fruit sin. The root sin is what he says right here. God shows no partiality. The root sin is that we show partiality. It may not be to race, it may be to our culture, uh, it could be to our nation, it could be to our gender, it could be all kind of things. And, and this is woven into our sinful nature. This is something that if we're not intentionally actually pushing against, then we're going to be conformed to the, to, to the world. But we're to be tr- not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which comes from the Word of God. So, suffice it to say, um, God shows no partiality based on race, gender, class, ethnicity, etc. Second truth we see right here is that God offers salvation through the person and work of Jesus, as opposed through our good works and through, you know, things like that, you know, only through Jesus. Look at verse 36 and following. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how he anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him, up on, the, raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So grace is unmerited favor. It was merited, but not by you or me, but by Jesus. Jesus finished the work on the cross. That's why he said it is finished. And so when it was very interesting in that text, when, it's actually in verse 39 where it says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That's, that should trigger, if you know the Old Testament, that should trigger a profound statement in the Old Testament. Paul quotes it again in Galatians. And it says this, very simple, cursed be anyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed be anyone who hangs on the tree. Of course, it was written long before uh, crucifixion was used as a means of punishment. And then we have what Jesus, what, what, what did he do? He hung on a cross. What was a cross made of? It was made of a tree. It's made of wood. And what Jesus was doing when Jesus went to the cross was more than just a mere act of kindness. It was that. But the... the, the the depth of the kindness is shown in what he actually took on. Cursed be anyone who hangs on the tree. Ever since Genesis 3, because of sin, we have lived in a cursed world and we are objects of the curse. We live in a death world. We are cursed. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took on the, cursed, the curse for us. He took on our condemnation. He took on our sin. And he did away with it. And he proved it by resurrecting from the dead. And so we, 
we know that salvation can be found but it's only through the person and work of Jesus not through good works not through church attendance not because you are so and so's granddaughter not because your granddad was a pastor but because of Jesus and then that leads to number three the last and final gospel truth is that we must believe in Jesus to receive forgiveness that means that we are not saying that Jesus died for sinners and therefore whether you repent and believe or not it, you're, you're, you're forgiven that's not what the Bible says again I'm on a need to know basis I, I need to know what the Bible says and the Bible makes it very clear look at verse 42 and 43 and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name now listen this is both inclusive and exclusive it is exclusive in the fact that it says everyone who believes in him there are not multiple ways to the father Jesus says I'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me that's not arrogant speaking truth is not arrogant or prideful it's just it's just truth but it <laughs> it is inclusive too because look at this where it says everyone who believes everyone who believes including the most radical sinner the one who is most far off the greatest prodigal you've ever known everyone who believes I talk to a lot of people to say Ben if you pastor if you knew what I've done if you only knew all the things that I, the places I've been and what I've done and I want to say I don't know that but here's what I do know the Bible says everyone who believes will be forgiven. Are you included in everyone? What's holding you back? And I want you to feel the urgency here because if you look back, verse 42, it says, He is the one appointed by God, talking about Jesus, to be judge of the living and the dead. You will be judged by Jesus one day. And you're not shaking that. You're not dodging that. And what's crazy is that he, he knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Not only like your thoughts, not only the good things you do, but the good things you do for the wrong reason. He knows the intentions of the bad things and the good things that you do. Nobody knows you. You don't even know yourself like he knows you. I've said it before. If I, were to, if I were to put up here a list of all, of all the good things you've ever done, but also all the bad things, and you put your name at the top and you stood up here, would you, would you want me to do that? All the bad things and all of the intentions, even the foul intentions for the good things you've done, everything you've ever done, if I could list it all up here with the whole church, would you be up for that? No. Nobody would do that. You wouldn't even stand before your peers who admit that they're sinful too. You think you can stand before God who really does know all of the intentions of your heart and all of your sin? You know this deep down that you are guilty and there is no sidestep in that. But the beauty of his grace is that Jesus has come and he's taken every bit of that and erased it. 
and said, come to me and I will give you rest. You come to me, I'll give you salvation, I'll give you forgiveness, I'll give you everything that you need. And so grace tells us that there is nothing that you have done and nothing that you will do that can ever change God's love. His love for you is rooted in his son Jesus and that is a perfect, unchanging, always and forever love. And so come, Charles Spurgeon, he said, we yet have time. Let no person living say he has not time for while life lasts, hope lasts. The sentence, depart ye cursed, is not yet pronounced by Christ's lips on you. Pronounce it not on yourselves. Do not conclude your case to be hopeless and make it hopeless. But rather believe that being in the assembly of God's people today, listening to the testimony of his grace, that you are still on praying ground and pleading terms with God, and you yet have time given you to seek the Lord. The most aged need not despair. The most guilty need not conclude that their day of grace is over until that iron bar shall fasten the door and you are shut up in the pit forever. Let not Satan persuade you that you are beyond all hope while the gospel note rings with the silver trumpet of gracious invitation. He that has ears, let him hear. You yet have time, time to seek the Lord. Will you believe? If you're not believing already, will you believe? Today is a day of salvation. This past week has been a tough week. We've had four people die in one week in this church. Did three funerals. And I tell you, it takes it out of you to think through, what are you going to say to describe somebody, a faithful, godly person's life in just a few short minutes? What are you going to say? What, what can I say? And then to think that these are the same people that I was looking at in their eyes, pleading them to know the urgency of the gospel, just like I'm pleading with you today. And knowing that we will all be judged and stand before the Lord. And on that day, either you cling to the cross or you cling to damnation. It just put a sense of urgency in me that I just, I hope, overflows to you. Don't waste time. Or as the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If we really number our days, not only are we living with a posture of repentance, looking to Christ and His finished work, but in that same posture and in that same vein, we will also share. Would you share the gospel? Charlotte Grimmer, a great saint of this church, uh, she headed up our prayer ministry. She was, uh, she was a prayer warrior. She was a Sunday school teacher. She'll be sorely missed. But I was, I was meeting with a family. They, they shared with me. They said, you know, when we came in from Birmingham, um, we saw next to her bedside table three by five cards. You know what they were? Scripture memory verses. She never stopped working at memorizing Scripture. And the particular Scripture that she had right there was a Roman's road that she would she would constantly, it's like, you know, even the professionals work on just simple mechanics. Constantly remembering that so she could constantly share. 
What's interesting is they told about years and years ago when we had EE here, Evangelism Explosion, which I'd love to do. I mean, we we need to continue to share the gospel. Um, she She was trained in EE. She went out. She was so nervous. She was so nervous about sharing the gospel. And she... She recalled, she told her, one of her daughters, she said, the first person I shared with, I really could not have butchered it anymore. She said, I was so unclear, I just couldn't, my, my thoughts, I was nervous, my heart was pounding, I was ner- I, I didn't really, I was thinking, am I even making sense here? And as she finished up, the lady she was talking to started crying. And she said, I have longed for someone to come explain this to me for so long and finally I understand it now according to Charlotte she just she didn't feel like she did a good job but what's true with Cornelius and Peter was true with the chief in this remote tribe in Indonesia is true with Charlotte found out that day and it's true with you we're called to do the sharing, but God does the preparing. And God will often, well, you'll see, God will often have already prepared hearts. And we're simply his conduits of grace. As we go and we share, feel the urgency to share the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that um, as we close this up today, that you would align our hearts with your word we are a people of the book and uh, we we need your word and we confess that we do not always align with your word and so God changes from the inside out as we leave here Lord, help us to reflect your character help us to feel the urgency help us to look upon all ethnicities nationalities races and everything else through the lens of the gospel, just as God taught Peter. And Lord, help us to be urgent to not only repent and believe, if we haven't already, but to share, to share the gospel with others, for we know that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. If there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that they get that right before they leave, that they would simply look to Christ and live. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.